Welcome to Legal Ethics in the News, a podcast series from the New York City Bar Association, featuring Stephen Gillers and Barbara S. Gillers discussing legal ethics issues making headlines in the legal or mainstream media. Stephen is the Eluhuru Professor of Law, and Barbara is an adjunct professor of law, both at New York University School of Law. In this episode, documents inadvertently sent, clawed back, and shaming lawyers for the clients they accept or reject. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Here are Barbara Gillers and Stephen Gillers. Hi, I'm Barbara Gillers. And I'm Stephen Gillers. This is our podcast, Legal Ethics in the News. Every few weeks, we will discuss current legal ethics issues in the news. The issues may come from a bar ethics opinion, a court case, a story in the legal or popular press, or a suggestion from you. Yes, you, you, can, you can send suggestions to this address, legalethicspodcast at nycbar.org. We'll post some of the sources we mention in our podcast or the citations to them on the City Bar site accompanying the podcast. You can also get our podcasts wherever you get your other podcasts, like Google, Spotify, Apple, or elsewhere. For for this, our 19th podcast, <clears throat> we will discuss the potential consequences when a lawyer mistakenly or inadvertently sends confidential or privileged information to an adversary. We've, we focus here on the news about Alex Jones's lawyer, in the defamation case against Jones by Sandy Hook Elementary School parents. Then we discuss whether lawyers are morally accountable for their choice of clients or for what they do for them, and conversely, whether a law firm can be criticized because of the clients it rejects. And as you've probably heard, the lawyer for Alex Jones sent opposing counsel who represented parents of a child killed at the Sandy Hook Elementary School information from Jones's cell phone. Apparently in error, the parents are suing Jones in defamation based on lies Jones spread about the 2012 shooting. There are two other lawsuits against Jones by other parents. But this is the first case to go to trial. It was held in Texas. In cross-examining Jones, the plaintiff's lawyer said, quote, Mr. Jones, did you know that 12 days ago your attorneys messed up and sent me an entire digital copy of your entire cell phone with every text message you've sent for the past two years, close quote. According to news reports, Jones had denied for years that he had the text messages. This incident invites us to talk about when and how inadvertent disclosure of privileged information or work product will waive protection for the items disclosed. We should add that we don't know if any of the text messages are in fact privileged or work product. If not, the rules we discuss here would not have helped Jones or his lawyers to mitigate the harm, but other rules might. To be 
privileged, communications must be between a lawyer and a client or representatives of either. It's a bit more nuanced than that, but that will do for now. A good statement of the rule is an unenacted federal evidence rule 503. It's, it's unenacted only because Congress chose not to adopt any privilege rules, but it has been influential nonetheless. Even if they are not privileged, most or all of the text messages are at least likely to be protected as confidential under legal ethics rules and the law of agency or fiduciary duty, which means that Jones's lawyers would have had certain obligations to protect them from disclosure. So this event puts two issues in the news. The first is whether the negligent disclosure of a client's confidential information will support a claim against the lawyer for under substantive law. Confidential information ordinarily includes all information a lawyer learns from any source in representing a client. The key words, of course, are, quote, any source, close quote. That includes a communication received from the client himself, because then the communication is privileged as well as confidential. But it also includes information about the client's matter from other sources, and so not privileged. The second issue this incident raises is when, if ever, a lawyer who has disclosed a client's privileged information or work product can get it back and avoid adverse use and a claim of waiver. In federal court and in many states, including Texas, the inadvertent disclosure of privileged information or work product can be clawed back, as it's been described. The emergence of these rules is explained by the increasing risk of erroneous disclosure due to technology and the vast amount of information produced in e-discovery. Inadvertence is easy. Any, any lawyer can err. So, first... Is there a cause of action against a lawyer who discloses a client's confidential information, whether or not also privileged, if it causes harm? The answer is that there is. Most obviously, is this so? If the disclosure is intentional, the claim would be for breach of fiduciary duty. The same conduct would violate ethics rules and an ethics rule violation can, in many jurisdictions, be some evidence of a violation of a legal duty, although an ethics rule violation by itself does not create a legal claim. What about negligent disclosure? Well, lawyers are agents, and the law of agency would make an agent's negligent performance actionable. Negligent or intentional disclosure of confidential information can also support discipline. Indeed, the negligent handling of client information that creates a risk of disclosure can support discipline even if there is no harm. We've cited two cases in the material accompanying this podcast, one involving intentional disclosure 
and the other involving negligent disclosure of confidential information. Both supported a legal claim. And we've cited two more cases involving discipline for negligent handling of client confidences or intentional disclosure of confidential information. We should also mention Rule 1.6c of the ABA model rules. It provides, quote, a lawyer shall make reasonable efforts to prevent the inadvertent or unauthorized disclosure of or unauthorized access to information relating to the representation of a client, close quote. Okay, so what might this all mean for Alex Jones's lawyers? Well, Jones may have a legal claim under Texas law. Whether he does or not depends on the state's fiduciary duty and agency law, perhaps along with other law. As, as we explained in a moment, that law does not look good for Jones's lawyers. And whether he wants to bring a claim and what his damages might be if he did are entirely separate questions. In one of our favorite cases for classroom teaching, a court refused to dismiss a legal claim against a law firm that had disclosed a client's or prospective client's confidential information to a prosecutor. The disclosure appears to have benefited the second client. That case, as it happens, comes from Texas, where the first Alex Jones trial was held. You may know the story behind this case because it was used as the basis for a fine novel and film. The novel is The Sweet Her Hereafter, The Sweet Hereafter by Russell Banks. The film of the same name was directed by Atom Egoyan. The case is Perez v. Kirk and Carrigan, cited on the materials accompanying this podcast. So what happened is this. Ruben Perez drove a truck for a Coca-Cola bottling company. It collided with a school bus. Its brakes had failed. The bus was knocked into a pond and 21 children died. Perez was taken to a hospital where lawyers from Kirk and Carrigan, Carrington excuse me, visited him the next day. The bottling company had hired those lawyers. And Perez claimed that the lawyers told him they were his lawyers too. We don't think that that should matter since Perez could reasonably have believed that they were, especially as it appears, no caution was given. Indeed, the court said that an attorney-client relationship can be implied from the circumstances. In any event, the lawyers interviewed Perez, then arranged for a criminal defense lawyer to represent him. The lawyers then gave Perez's statement to the local DA, who indicted Perez for involuntary manslaughter. Three and a half years later, a jury took four hours to acquit Perez on all 21 counts. In the meantime, Perez sued the lawyers for breach of fiduciary duty, citing their disclosure of his statement. The appellate court reversed summary judgment for the law firm. 
And the case then appears to have settled. The bottlers paid the parents of the children $133 million. The bus company paid another $23 million. It's unclear why the lawyers gave Perez a statement to the district attorney. Perhaps it was seen as in the interest of their other client, the bottling company, to show cooperation with the investigation. The case stands for the proposition that a lawyer's voluntary disclosure of a client's confidential information can be a breach of fiduciary duty. Perez's damages included mental anguish and emotional distress as a result of the publicity from the indictment. We don't see many cases like this one, but it does happen. In Perez, the disclosure was intentional, but the negligent disclosure of a client's confidential information can also be a breach of fiduciary duty. Remember, the information does not have to be privileged to be the basis for a claim. It can be in that larger category called confidential information. We now want to address the second issue raised by the fact that Alex Jones's lawyer may have mistakenly given the opposing lawyer Jones's confidential information. Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 26 and Federal Evidence Rule 502 enable a lawyer who, in a federal or even a state proceeding, inadvertently gives the opposing party privileged information or work product the ability to avoid waiver under certain conditions. This has come to be called clawback. There are essentially three conditions. First, the disclosure must be inadvertent. If the disclosure was intentional, but the disclosing lawyer then realized too late that there might have been a valid basis not to disclose, clawback is not available. Second, the lawyer must have taken reasonable steps to prevent disclosure. That means that the law office must have policies in place calculated to avoid disclosure. Sloppiness defeats the rule. Third, the lawyer must then have taken reasonable steps to rectify the error, including, if applicable, following the requirements of Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 26B-5B. Many states, including Texas, also have clawback rules. In an age when files are searched through artificial intelligence, not human inspection, one might wonder if reliance on technology to produce discovery material will be seen as constituting reasonable steps to prevent disclosure. The notes of the advisory committee for the federal evidence rules answer that question. Quote, depending on the circumstances, a party that has that uses advanced analytical software applications and linguistic tools in screening for privilege and work product may be found to have taken reasonable steps to prevent inadvertent disclosure. The implementation of an efficient system of records management 
before litigation may also be relevant, end quote. While there's no requirement of human review of the artificial intelligence output, the advisory committee's notes add that, quote, the rule does require the producing party to follow up on any obvious indications that a protected communication or information has been produced inadvertently, end quote. So now we've given you the big picture under the federal rules, but should you or your opponent ever seek to claw back information disclosed inadvertently, you should closely read the rule in the jurisdiction in which the case is pending. The federal clawback option does not apply in transactional matters. It is for litigation or pre-litigation disclosures only. A lawyer who mistakenly discloses a client's privileged information outside litigation, say in a contract negotiation, will find no protection in the federal clawback rule discussed here. Back to Alex Jones. The clawback rule extends to privileged information and work product, but not to confidential information in neither category. Much of Alex Jones's erroneous disclosed information may be confidential, but not privileged or work product. Maybe all of it. So once disclosed, there would have been nothing Jones could have done to retrieve it under the federal rules. Or under the Texas rule. See, Texas rule of civil procedure 193.3, little d is in David, paren, which is limited to privileged information. Jones's Texas lawyer, Adina Reynolds, testified in a show cause hearing. He said the disclosure was a result of a wrong link provided by an administrative assistant, according to the ABA Journal. And he said, quote, it was a disaster. It was probably the worst day of my legal career, close quote, according to law.com. Titles of law review articles are rarely inspired. It can be a challenge to keep them short, yet informative enough to let a reader know pretty much what they're about. Subtitles can help this effort by providing more information, but brevity remains the goal. Every once in a while, a title may be clever without being too clever. One of us wrote an article that was meant to be clever, but was perhaps too clever. The subject was litigation funding, written at the early years of the industry. The title was Waiting for Good Dough. Good Dough? Good Dough? Get it? <laughs> it depends on where you put the accent. Okay, maybe too clever by half. This year, Brad Wendell of Cornell Law School published an article in the University of Illinois Law Review with a really catchy title, which, which means we wish we'd thought of it first. Lawyer shaming. It's at 2022 University of Illinois Law Review 175. No subtitle. Lawyer shaming is all you need to know to encourage reader curiosity. The argument is summed up in the first paragraph. 
quote, the Lincoln Project's effort to shame law firms working on behalf of the Trump campaign is only the most recent example of the public criticism, even vilification, directed against lawyers who represent unpopular clients. It continues, quote, the legal profession is most unified in its response, which appeals to values such as due process, fairness, and the right to counsel. Quote, on the other hand, many scholars contend that lawyers should be morally accountable for actions they take as professionals, since everyone remains a moral agent, even when acting in an institutional role, end quote. Wendell goes on to argue that, quote, contrary to the near unanimous view of lawyers, lawyers are subject to accountability for the clients they represent. Quote, in many cases, they have a complete normative defense. The social value of legality is a weighty, but not conclusive, justification for providing zealous representation to even the worst clients, end quote. He concludes, however, that, quoting again, ordinary morality persists and in some cases can produce justified self-evaluations or ascriptions to others of regret, guilt, or shame, close quote. The danger posed by lawyer shaming is that it will deter lawyers from representing the population of clients most in need of help, among them the most unpopular clients and those least able to pay a lawyer. Using Wendell's perspective, we think it would be appropriate to criticize the lawyers who spent years successfully delaying full implementation of Brown versus Board of Education even if they crossed no legal or ethical lines. And we think it would be appropriate to criticize the lawyers for Big Tobacco, who devised extreme theories to delay disclosure of scientific findings of the link between tobacco and cancer, even if they crossed no legal or ethical lines. A version of the questions Wendell asks resurface from time to time, but not only from the perspective Wendell addresses. Lately, some have asked the converse question. Which is, is a decision not to represent a particular person also subject to moral scrutiny? Or, or a decision not to continue with the representation and instead to withdraw where that can be done in accordance with, with withdrawal rules. It may not be the identity of a particular client that the lawyer rejects, but instead a wish not to advocate for a particular claim. This is not a question of professional ethics writ narrowly. But it is an important question for the bar, and it is in the news. Recently, Paul Clement, a former U.S. Solicitor General and celebrated uh, appellate advocate, left Kirkland after the firm decided it would no longer represent gun makers in Second Amendment cases. 
Clement had just won such a case in the Supreme Court. Criticism was swift from the usual expected sources. The Wall Street Journal published an editorial headlined, quote, you won your gun case, you're fired, close quote. The headline is inaccurate. As its first paragraph went on to make clear, Clement was not fired. He chose to leave the firm after it adopted its policy rather than submit to the policy. His client went with him to his new firm. Then, on August 18, Senators Mitch McConnell and Tom Cotton wrote the chief judge of every U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals except the Federal Circuit. The letter is accessible through one of the citations in the accompanying, pod, accompanying this podcast. That's the Law 360 article. It said, the letter said, the courts should not let Kirkland and by extension other firms handling pro bono matters or through court assignment withdraw from those cases because of antipathy to a broad reading of the Second Amendment. Presumably that would be so even if the firm honored all of the requirements in court rules governing when a lawyer could withdraw from a pending matter. Even if the client did not oppose withdrawal. And even if the withdrawal did not upset the court's calendar. In other words, these two senators want federal judges to refuse a timely and legitimate withdrawal request for political or ideological reasons alone. In effect, they would rewrite, they would write the Second Amendment into the withdrawal rule. That's Rule 1.16. Beyond withdrawal from a matter, would the senators next forbid firms to decline to accept a court assignment on the ground that the case relies on Second Amendment rights? And why stop with gun rights? There are other worthy constitutional rights. Or does the Second Amendment alone enjoy this special status? How about voting rights or LGBTQ rights? Should a court refuse to allow a firm to withdraw from a case because the firm no longer wishes to advocate for clients who want to narrow gun rights? The senators don't say. But neither is their letter limited to Kirkland or to guns. Going forward, they write, the judges should, quote, inquire of all firms with more than 500 attorneys whether they have placed any restrictions on their litigation advocacy positions due to the political positions of firm management or firm clients. The Wall Street Journal has also weighed in on the Kirkland and Clement story. It has expressed a newfound concern for the plight of unpopular clients. Referring to Kirkland, it wrote, quote, this is the opposite of ethical legal representation. Clients who are unpopular are the most in need of legal counsel. Kirkland is dumping clients who have done nothing wrong and have cases currently in litigation. Any charge of unethical conduct is wrong if it means to imply a violation of the professional conduct rules governing lawyers. There was no violation. 
But maybe the reference to ethical representation is meant only to express the journal's disapproval of the firm's decision. Hmm. Like the senators, the journal's concern seems limited to Second Amendment clients. It's confirmed for concern for so-called unpopular clients does not appear to extend to undocumented immigrants who are grievously underrepresented. Nor to support an increase in the paltry compensation for lawyers who represent indigent criminal defendants. The journal does emphasize that the Kirkland clients were advocating for a constitutional right. The right to counsel in a criminal case is also a constitutional right, and some immigrant claims may rely on the Constitution. The senators and the journal notwithstanding, the rule is quite clear. So long as the choice of whom not to represent does not violate the anti-discrimination provisions of a state professional conduct rule or a court assignment, lawyers are free to choose not to represent whomever they wish not to represent. We don't know Kirkland's reasons for its decision not to advocate for Second Amendment rights, and it doesn't matter. It had the right to do so. But we should recognize three reasons that may influence any firm to choose not to represent a particular cause or client. First, a substantial number of its lawyers do not want to be associated with that client in any way, even though they would not personally have to represent it. Second, some prospective new hires, whether new graduates or lateral lawyers, will reject the firm and go elsewhere. Third, current clients do not want to be associated with a firm that represents a particular client. All of these reasons may explain why many law firms, especially among big law, have refused to represent Donald Trump or his businesses. And that includes firms with different political reputations. Who could criticize that decision? That's our podcast for today. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you learned something. And thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this New York City Bar Association podcast. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find citations and other materials mentioned in this podcast at the programs page at nycbar.org slash podcasts. Have you seen or heard a topic in the news that you think the Gillers should consider covering? Email legalethicspodcast at nycbar.org. The Gillers do not provide ethics advice to individual lawyers. Lawyers admitted to practice in New York with a question about their own prospective conduct under the New York rules may receive informational guidance by calling the City Bar's Ethics Hotline at 212-382-6663. Find more City Bar podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, or on our website at nycbar.org podcasts. This podcast was recorded on September 7th, 2022, and produced by Alex Cardaris.